Hello and welcome to The Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts and with me today, as always, is Dr. Lee Kunla. Hi Nathan, hi everyone. So today we are continuing our exploration of the occult. And in order to do this, we're going to do a deep dive on one of the sort of classic figures of the occult world. And that is the inaccurately named Mad Monk, Gregory Rasputin. Last time we talked about the occult, we said that we would do this episode next. But something strange happened to me in the meantime, which is that when we decided our next episode would be on Rasputin, I thought this is going to be super easy because I know all about Grigory Rasputin. He is a, a mystic holy man or potentially a charlatan from Siberia who roughly 100 years ago, finagles his way into the Russian royal family because he apparently has magical healing powers uh, to heal their hemophilic son, Alexei, and was able to then get incredible power, personal status, and to some extent, potentially wealth of some sort, and that this was maybe a scam and in the research, I discovered that a lot of what I thought I knew about this story turns out to be quite inaccurate. Yeah, and that's, in a way, that's why it's good to do this story. Because this story, I would argue, encapsulates much of the difficulties when you study a topic that has to do with the occult. Yeah. Last time we talked about how the occult is sometimes used as, a, uh, as derogatory slander, uh, for groups who don't believe what you believe or who are doing things that you consider to be immoral or unethical. And Grigory Rasputin certainly rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, maybe because of his proximity to the royal family, maybe because he was just a peasant, quote-unquote. And maybe because look at what happened after his involvement with the Russian royal family. You yeah. have the Russian Revolution. And you have them doing terribly in the, just before the Russian Revolution, you have them doing terribly in the war, making very bad decisions that cost the lives of many, many Russians. Things are kind of a mess. And yeah. people and are in the middle of that mess appears to be this occult figure exactly. of Rasputin. But the problem we have in trying to study him is that because so many people didn't like him, but then there was also others who were complete devotees of him. Our literature is very hyperbolic. It's, it's either he was the devil incarnate or he was Jesus incarnate. I mean, literally, that's essentially what you get in the recounting of his life. Yeah, this is, this is what I've put together, like a kind of equation that I put together in trying to study this stuff. So because people fear the occult, People who fear the occult are more likely to spread rumors and exaggerations about occult leaders that fit into the storyline that they already believe. Right. But because supporters are thirsty for evidence that confirms occult powers, they want to believe that people have occult powers, they're also more likely to believe and spread exaggerations. Yep. And because the person who claims to have occult powers relies on people fearing or respecting those powers— the people who claim they have the powers are also more likely to spread exaggerations that hype up their abilities and make them seem more mysterious. Yeah, exactly. So, so what a mess. And all of that happens around Rasputin. And so it's really hard to get a handle on who he was and what he did. And what I realized in my research was that the Rasputin that I thought I knew 
is is to a large extent a work of propaganda, mostly by people who hated him, and then to a lesser extent by people who were devotees and completely committed to him. But I would argue that in trying to learn about this this strange, mysterious occult figure, even though it's cloaked in lies and exaggerations and disinformation, I, I feel like we can still put something together that will help us understand something about the nature of the occult, something about the nature of power, maybe, something about the nature of social ideas. Like we still can look at this and come away with maybe something that can teach us about something. Uh, definitely. Let's start off by painting like a, an absurdly broad and oversimplistic background of, of what's happening in Russia at this time. Yeah. So we're talking about Russia in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Mm -hmm. For people afflicted mildly with dyslexia like me, that is the late 1800s. Yes. I always and, find and that 1900s. Yeah, and early 1900s. That's right. So our story is really sort of like, in terms of the Romanov dynasty, what, like 1880s to 1916, 1917. Uh, in terms of Rasputin, it's around 1904, 1905 to 1917. 16, so, sorry. So worldwide, there's all sorts of things going on. The things that we need to focus on, specifically because we're doing this research into an occult figure, what was happening in the world of occult in Europe and in Russia at this time period? So I would make the argument that Russia is basically divided. Not only are there all sorts of different religions and things like that and, and different ethnic groups, but socially you have people who do not have a ton of money, the workers, and you have the elite the royal family, you know, the fancy people. That's, I think, a really, really brief summary of what's going on. <laughs> I think there's another distinction to be made as well. Throughout Russian history, there has been a sort of internal identity crisis. Are Russians more Europeans or are Russians more towards the East? And we find ourselves at a time when the capital of Russia right now is St. Petersburg. This is a city that was essentially generated to be a European capital in the image of European capitals. And so we're dealing at this point with a nobility that speaks mostly French, mm -hmm. that identifies with Western Europe, whose nobility is in large part Western European nobility. I mean, and we've mentioned this often, how interconnected European nobilities and royalty was at this period. And, and I'm about to get in trouble with your mom again. <laughs> My mom does not like it when Nathan notes how incestuous the British royals have been. And yet here I go. It's about to happen again. <laughs> so at the time period of Rasputin, we had a czar, which is you know, the king. Emperor, maybe. Yeah, emperor, king, the, the leader, the sort yeah. of religious and, and political leader of Russia. And the Tsarina, yep. Alexandra. Now, Alexandra was actually born in Germany. Yeah. This is going to be crucial for the point I'm about to make. She was Queen Victoria's granddaughter. Yep. Not only that, but Queen Victoria wanted to marry Alexandra off to one of her other grandchildren. Yep. So think that one through. This is happening all the time. When we say that the royals are purebred, what we mean is they are inbred. <laughs> and so Alexandra doesn't end up marrying one of her cousins like Queen Victoria wants. Instead, she ends up marrying one of her second cousins. Okay. So she really went outside the family. On yeah, that no kidding. What a stretch. 
So in, in this world, in this world of Russia, where we have this nobility that considers themselves sort of European, and we have the, the workers, the peasantry, who are very much of, of Russia, the Russian peasant universes are filled with witches and sorcerers and wood sprites and mermaids. When you read any of the classic Russian literature that talks about the, the Russian peasantry, you read Pushkin or Turgenev or Gogol or Tolstoy, you're always bumping up against occult beliefs. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we have the Russian Orthodox Church, which is the dominant religion of Russia. There's a lot of what we would call almost occult aspects to the Russian Orthodox Church because they have this great Gnostic influence that you don't necessarily see in Catholicism or Lutherism or mm -hmm. something like that. Very quickly, Gnosticism is an interpretation of Christianity which is radically different from what we understand as, as Christianity today. Uh, to give you how, an idea of how different, from a Gnostic perspective, this world was not created by an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good God. It was produced by kind of like a, an, an absurd, goofy God who was part of a larger sort of constellation of gods. So it's, it's wildly different from yeah. what we think of as Christ, Christianity today. And the Russian Orthodox Church does have some Gnostic elements to it. From an occult perspective, in the in the peasant world, like you're you're surrounded by magic and monsters. Now, the fancy folk of Russia, they don't share the same world of witches and sorcerers and wood sprites and mermaids, but they're still interested, fascinated, I would say, with the occult. But they're getting their occult beliefs from Europe, in the same way that they're trying to get all their culture from Europe. Yeah, and I think you you note something we brought up in our occult episode, which is that this was a larger cultural phenomenon. So you see it happening at the same time in Germany, in France, in England, in uh, the United States, in the places that consider themselves, quote unquote, Western. This is emerging as a common theme and interest uh, throughout a lot of related cultures in the West. And so Russia is just part of, is sort of just sharing in this renewed interest in the occult. Yeah, things like communicating with the dead. Spiritualism. Or uh, looking into the future. What is the, what's the fancy word for that? Divination. Okay. Or perhaps working with demons. Yes, theurgy. And there's all sorts of reasons historically why this is happening all over the place. And it's sort of similar things in Russia, right? We have the, we, at this point, we have the, like a fading credibility of the Orthodox Church. Yeah. We have destabilizing effects of things like industrialization and urbanization. We've got social upheaval. We've got like economic upheaval. We've got brand new technologies that are changing the way everybody lives. It's a lot of stuff happening all at once. And so it's not surprising that one of the ways that people cope is by turning to these occult beliefs, which in some way are really quite reassuring. There is a kind of interest in religion and revival in certain religious traditions that we're seeing across the Western world at the same time as we're seeing the rise of capitalism, of industrialization, the, how cities are becoming more important, how a lot of traditional ways of life are being broken down. We need a new way to cope with this. Now that you've broken the hold of orthodoxy, in the West with the Protestant Reformation, you start getting all these different interpretations. Something similar happens in Russia, but with an emphasis more on mysticism. So suddenly you have all these mystical cults that are Christian in a way, but Christian sort of like the way the Gnostics are Christian, where their interpretation is very different. 
And orthodoxy might look at this and say, no, no, this is heresy or this is actually the occult. But this is the milieu in which we start our story where there's a lot of different sort of religious splinter groups also in Russia, a lot of different movements, a lot of attempts to try and understand how to grapple with the new reality of science and capitalism and cities and industrialization and, and social movements and wars and et cetera, et cetera. And, and all that scientific stuff, as we've talked about before, that also seems threatening to a lot of people because it doesn't provide us with much meaning necessarily. Yeah. It doesn't provide us with a kind of spiritual guidance. It's great at explaining what's going on around us. It's and, great for developing new technologies and manufacturing methods. Yeah. But it doesn't really say much about who we are in a way that we want to hear. Yeah. And, and, and Dostoevsky is one of the people who is writing it at this time and wondering, is the European model the way the Russians should go? Or is there maybe a more Russian alternative that doesn't just, um, you know, recapitulate what France and Berlin and London are doing? Yeah, I mean, science is, is running around exercising the spirits. And somebody like Dostoevsky is worried that they will exercise the Russian spirit from yeah. Russia. What's the purpose of life, mm -hmm. asked Tolstoy, you know, in, in that same vein? Well, now we've really got some good setting up of the milieu. <laughs> so this is this is all going on. We're we're in this this time of immense change, and things have been bad for Russia. They get into a big war with Japan, yeah. which they're expecting to do well in. The Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905 is a complete embarrassment for the royal family because they are. The leaders of Russia, in, in, there are, isn't really this division of power. Yes, you send a general off to go fight a war, but at the end of the day, it's still your war. Japan was looked at in quite racist and derogatory terms by the rulers of Russia at that time. And there was a sense that there was simply no way that, and please recognize all the scare quotes that I'm putting here, but that, you know, a small island of Asiatics would have any ability to defeat the great Russian Empire as they understood themselves. Yeah, until that small island sank basically the entire Russian fleet. And then the Japanese sink them essentially as soon as they arrive. So um, they've had that failure. Mm. There's a lot of rumblings. They've had some revolutions. Yeah, where there, people have tried to like overthrow the czar. Right there, in 1905, you have a peasant revolution that a lot of people see as foreshadowing the 1917-1918 revolution. And it's again, it's because people are hungry. Yeah. Um, usually these kinds of things are not started for big ideological reasons. They're started by the fact that, you know, I haven't eaten in a couple of days and enough is enough. I need some food. Yeah. This is probably an apocryphal quote. But Karl Marx may have said, every society is three meals away from a revolution. And I, mean, I mean, even if he didn't say it... It's a good quote, a good because quote. it really does give you a sense of why some of these things were happening in Russia. Russia has not industrialized very well. Russia still has a feudal system that most of Europe abolished like 200 years ago. And Russia's still running around with serfs and vassals and lords and all of this kind of stuff. I mean, this is partly why Queen Victoria doesn't want one of her granddaughters to go off and be the Tsarina of Russia. Yeah. 
not so much that she didn't like Nikolai II. She yeah. thought he was a swell guy, but she's like, eh, I don't, I don't think that this country deserves one of my grandchildren. I think she even said something along the lines of Russia's not a safe place. Something could go down there any day. Now, okay, I mean, she that's wasn't not a wrong. direct quote, <laughs> right? Yeah, something that, that was Queen Victoria. Something's going to go down. <laughs> yeah, so that's the that's the situation in which we find ourselves at the beginning of the story. And so why don't we start the story with, why don't we start it at the top with the Tsar and the Tsarina? Let's do that. This was a revelation to me, especially if you know the story of Rasputin as this charlatan who comes into the royal family to help them with their ill child. The the Tsar and Tsarina are part of the Romanov line. They're, in fact, the last one, spoiler alert, uh, they're the last of the Romanovs. But it might just be easier to refer to them as the Romanovs instead of always Tsar and Tsarina. I just really enjoyed saying Tsarina. Nicholas II is the Tsar and Alexandra is the Tsarina. Tsarina. What I found really interesting was that there was a mystic occultist. There was an occultist who was from France, from Lyon, in fact. He is known as Monsieur Philippe, who becomes advisor to the Romanovs, the Tsar and Tsarina. He does things like, and again, the scare quotes, he does things like heal people with spiritual fluids. Exactly what that is, is unclear. Uh, He's interested in various aspects of the occult. Uh, He believes that he is able to, he essentially works as an occultist doctor. That's That's sort of his scam can i call it that i'm not sure i mean i'm fine with it somebody else might disagree that's his realm is that he is he is sort of a spiritual healer but he can heal your body that way too now of course there's a tradition of this kind of thing in the occult world in the 18th and 19th century we're not going to get into it because i got to get obsessed with franz mesmer and his glass harmonica and we just don't have time for that now although we will come back to it in another episode and like, why would it be that the Tsar and the Tsarina were so interested in this occult world? I, I would argue there's a, there's a bunch of reasons. One, they're faced with a really threatening possibility. Like the Tsarina is really convinced that she deserves to be the leader of Russia because of the divine rule of kings. Yeah. The idea that that there's just something special about her because of who she is that God has basically shined his countenance upon these people, and these people should therefore rule over all of the other humans. This is a classic idea. It's what royal families are based on. Right. Like, what's the justification that we have... I'm going to get into it again. What's the justification <laughs> that we have royal families, just because of who you are when you're born, that you should rule the country? Right. It's because of this idea of the divine rule of kings. But we're in a time period where that has been badly shook. Right. And it seems to be like even more shaky in Russia at this time, I can see why the Tsar and Tsarina would have been drawn to an occultism that looks to a truth in the past. Mm -hmm. Because like, that's where they're drawing their power from. They're drawing their power from tradition. They're drawing their power from this sort of mystic origin story. Now, interestingly, I've also been reading that the Marxists at the time, the revolutionaries, were also interested in occultism but a very different brand of occultism that was looking to the future. Right. And we'll come back to those guys in another episode. Okay. I think you're absolutely right to look also for some personal psychological reasons for why the royals might have been interested in this. I think, though, also worth noting is that both 
the Tsar and Tsarina are in their way very devout. We are, as Nathan noted earlier, when we're dealing with the Russian Orthodox tradition, which of course is a itself an incredibly broad tradition, hard to really just... I mean, it's you know, a big country. It's a big country. Uh, it's, uh, this tradition has existed for a very long period of time, and it's always, you know, you kind of try and give a post-stamp definition of these things, misses all of the things that are interesting, which is all the complexity and variation. But I think it's true that there is, to uh, some extent, a more mystical component to Eastern Orthodoxy when you compare it to especially certain versions of Protestant Christianity, which go really about as far as you can in the other direction sometimes. There is also a kind of, I think, a, a predisposition to being somewhat open to mystics who always come not contrary to the word of God, if I can put it like that. They're not suggesting an alternative scripture. They're not trying to start new religions. They come in and they say any of their powers granted to them by God and that their working in the world through this power is evidence of the fact that they are good because God wouldn't have given them this power otherwise. Although sometimes the orthodoxy will disagree with them. Well, indeed, because it becomes a real threat to them. Now, oh, I've got one more reason why they yeah. would probably have been into the occult, and yeah. this is a very shallow reason. Yeah, it was fashionable. That too, and it was particularly fashionable in France. That's right. And Which, if you're the Russian upper class, you want to be like Frencher than French, as French as possible. What's the difference between an advisor like Philippe and any other kind of advisor? I would make this argument: when you're dealing with an occult advisor. They are getting their information not from intelligence services and spies or anything like that, but they're basing it on things like divination. They're basing it on revealed knowledge. They are telling you to make decisions that don't have to do with sort of the practical workings of everyday society, but, you know, you need to do this because it's going to affect the spirit world, which will then cause the effects that you want. That's, that's right. You do see the danger here with someone like Monsieur Philippe, who becomes advisor to the Tsar and Tsarina. He is from France. It occurred to people that what if he was actually an agent? In fact, Ella, who is the sister of Alexandra, the Tsarina, this is a paraphrase of her, uh, of hers. Spiritualism is being used to control the emperor and the empress. And, and you could see why spiritualism would be a great way of doing that. Yeah. Because if you believe, for example, that I can speak to the dead, yeah. then you would come to me for advice. I could basically tell you anything. anything. I could say, Lee, your ancestors really want you to lend Nathan your car. Yeah. And it'd be like, why do they want that? It's like, it's not for me to say. Exactly. It's just what they're telling me. And and I think it does it does actually point out a really dangerous vulnerability. Monsieur Philippe, as far as I could see, was not an agent of the French state. He did not, I mean, I think he was a charlatan, but he was not a, a political agent sent by a foreign power. But I could imagine how powerful that would be. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, this becomes as well the worry about Rasputin is who is actually doing this advising? And just as you say, Nathan, it's not just not based on reason. Anything is plausible now, and so who 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 can really 
understand the mind of God. Maybe I should secede a whole bunch of my territory to France. Who knows? This might be the great plan, right? Well, I think there's probably even listeners who might even know somebody who has been taken advantage of by some kind of charlatan who pretended that they had these powers. Right. And then the next thing you know, they've got your your mom's credit card right. and they're racking up giant bills. Right. And, and suddenly you can't the, find them anymore. Yeah. yeah. And that's exactly. just on the individual level. Yeah. But on the state level, you could really pull off some nonsense. Well, he did actually pull off some nonsense that in a way got him fired. Here's a bit of late 19th century sexism for you, and not just then. The role, the primary purpose for the Tsarina was to bear a male heir to Tsar Nicholas II. You got to make more Tsars. You got to make more Tsars. And uh, by the time that I'm picking up this story, she has had four consecutive, quote unquote, failures. She's had four daughters. Of course, you know, this is totally her fault. Right. Right? I mean, that's how it's going to be read by... she. She's not strong-willed enough. She doesn't care about Russia enough. And also, she's not that popular in Russia anyway. For, no. I mean, once she's German. Yes. That doesn't help. No. She's a bit aloof. Yes. Because she believes in this idea of the divine right to rule, she isn't trying to, like, do a charm offensive on the Russian people. Right. Why should she rule them? Because she's destined to. She's right. got. She's chosen to. God put her there, so who are we to complain about it? So if somebody says, hey, could you wave at the people out of the train window? She'd be like, well, I'm not going to wave at people out of a train window. Right. Yeah. I am the Tsarina. Exactly. God wants me here. Exactly. So she and her husband and all of Russia are desperate for a male heir. And Monsieur Philippe consults the Tsarina and assures her that she is already at the point of consultation pregnant. What happens thereafter is that, indeed, she starts to uh, develop, uh, show signs of pregnancy, her belly gets big, and it's an exciting time. Now, Monsieur Philippe has given specific instructions that Alexandra is not to be examined by her medical doctors. Now, being so happy that she's pregnant again, and this time under the assurance of Monsieur Philippe with a boy, they're just ecstatic. They don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth. They just do what they're told. And eventually it turns out that it was a false pregnancy, that in fact she wasn't at all pregnant. It was, and I don't really know how false pregnancies actually work. I'm imagining it like a placebo effect, in a sense. It was an utter humiliation for the royal family, for the Romanovs, who the state was preparing like a jubilee, like a celebration of the birth. They were sending out notices. Uh, the press was excited. They had to cover it publicly by calling it a miscarriage. But uh, the inner circle knew that she had never been pregnant, at least not the fifth time. This was horribly embarrassing. The political fallout is that Monsieur Philippe has to leave the, the court and is no longer an advisor to the Romanovs, but he leaves them with a sort of a prophecy saying there will be another advisor that comes later. There's no suggestion that uh, Philippe knows anything about Rasputin, but I thought this story was very telling because it suggests that Rasputin isn't this one-off 
kind of charlatan who, because of the son, was able to get into the family. No, in fact, the, the Romanovs were looking for this kind of spiritual advisor. After Monsieur Philippe, they go through a, a, a four or five other contenders who, for a couple of months, uh, hold their interest, but uh, by and by, each is replaced. It's in 1905 when Rasputin finally makes it to St. Petersburg. He has been wandering, um, and not that much is known about the first 30-odd years of Rasputin's life. I'll get to a biography of him in a second. But in 1905, he emerges in St. Petersburg, which, as we said earlier, is currently the capital, in the time of the telling of the story, is the capital of Russia. He, through basically a, a few lucky connections, is connected with the Tsar and Tsarina, with the Romanovs, and quickly assumes the role that Monsieur Philippe had, but even more so. So whereas Philippe was sort of a spiritual healer and advisor, Rasputin is seen uh, as, as a holy man. Yes, he can also heal, and yes, the, the healing with Alexei's hemophilia is an important part of why they keep him around, but he is deemed to be more than that. He is considered to be something quite divine. Some of his followers believe he's a saint. Now, this is probably the time where we should explain who is this mysterious guy that shows up in St. Petersburg. Yeah. One of the amazing things about Rasputin is we have a bunch of photographs of him. Yeah. And the photographs of Rasputin are bizarre. Yeah. He always looks super intense. He's got these piercing eyes. Like, they all look like heavy metal album covers. <laughs> and my favorite photographs are pictures of a bunch of people with Rasputin amongst them. Yeah. Because then as you look at the photograph, you're like, normal person, normal person, normal person, zombie wizard, yeah. normal person, normal person. Like, yeah. it's... I can't over-exaggerate how weird he looks in photographs. And so many people talked about that experience in real life when they met him. Like even those who thought that he was a complete fraud talked about his eyes, the intensity of the stare, and the sense that he had this kind of aura, this magnetism about him. Yeah. Um, it certainly wasn't, he wasn't charming. Uh, he wasn't funny. Although he, I heard he was calming. Like, he wasn't charming, but there was something calming about his demeanor. Yes, although when he prayed, he was he did so in a very agitated state. He wasn't always calming, I guess, no. is the point. You might go out with him and it would be very intense. It would not at all feel relaxing. You know, he would challenge you on basically whether God loves you and you love God. So we got Rasputin. He's born in 1869. Let's do some real nuts and bolts stuff. Born in yeah. 1869 in a small remote village in Siberia. Yeah. A small remote village in Siberia. Right. Like that That alone tells you something. Yeah. Because uh, Siberia is already sort of remote. So if you're in a remote village in a remote part, like you are out there. Porkrovskoya is apparently how you pronounce the name of his village. I took a look at it in um, wiki images, and it is flat, it is barren, quite ramshackle log cabins with a large white church in the midst of him. And that is it. That and it's is not all the kind of place there. that you would expect somebody to emerge from who would then like wield so much power no. in all of Russia. You no. don't expect somebody to come out of that, and yet here he comes. 
Here it comes. Now, it's very difficult to separate the truth about much of Rasputin's life from the legend spread by his supporters or the rumors spread by his detractors. Yes. When I was learning about Rasputin, it felt to me a lot like if you could imagine being a historian a hundred years from today and trying to figure out who Britney Spears was, but all you had to go on were either, on the one hand, tabloid newspapers, which talked about the kind of Wild parties, uh, wild and... parties, and out you know outrageous moments like if she has like a breakdown in a shopping line or something like that. So that's one source is you have outrageous tabloid stories, and then on the other hand you have like fan posts on I don't know Facebook. Facebook. Yeah, okay. So imagine you had just like a Facebook fan page versus tabloids and you're trying to figure out who was this person actually both sources are terrible and that's essentially the situation we're in with Rasputin because on the one hand you have the detractors on detractors actually come from two sides you have as you said earlier Nathan you have the Russian Orthodox Church who believes the occult is real and that you shouldn't meddle with it and so therefore Rasputin is like an agent of the devil yeah he's working with demons or you have those who just think he's a total fraud and charlatan, and they, you know, say things like, oh, it's the whole thing is a scam. He's just basically using this as a way to sexually assault women and to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, and to get anything else from these kind of two accounts ends up being really difficult. And we don't really know that much, certainly about, say, the first 30-odd years of his life until he emerges in St. Petersburg. Well, I'll give you an example of exactly this sort of thing. I came across uh, accounts that argued that Rasputin, as a young person, was a horse thief. Yeah. And I came across accounts that said he had the supernatural ability to identify horse thieves. Right. So... Which of those is true? Are both of them true? Are neither of them true? Right. Like, it's a mess trying to wade through when you're just going through people who hate somebody and people who worship somebody. Yeah, and it's, I had the same problem when I tried to figure out whether Rasputin smelled or not. Yeah, something uh, that simple. Something that simple. And, and, and you have his detractors who are like, this guy stinks. You smell him from a mile away. He smells like a barnyard animal. It's like a goat in the living room. And then on the other hand, you're like, uh, you get accounts which say things like, he went to the baths every day, he sh- he, he, his clothes were clean every day, he was meticulous about his appearance. And you'd think something this simple should be clear. But the people who hated him said he stank. The people who loved him said he smelled wonderfully. And there seems to be no... Nobody else. He's a very divisive figure. And just this idea of us sitting around trying to figure out how Rasputin smells, I think you're really getting like an inside look into the kind of work that we have to do to try to piece together this sort of thing. Yeah. And like that one example is such a great example of what it's like. Yeah. When we're just confronted with like, what is truth? Yeah, exactly. Now, I don't want this to sound at all or not just even to sound like it. I don't want to do any kind of whitewashing of somebody's sexual predation. You know, this might very much be part of it. But the problem that we have, if we can't even figure out if the guy smells, of course, his detractors say that he is, you know, a complete and utter sexual predator. 
And then his devotees say he would never do such a thing under any circumstances. Neither have great evidence. We, and, we, yeah, we know the truth would be somewhere in between there, but the question is where in between. And like yeah. you say, this does matter because these are really serious crimes. Yeah. I mean, with the smelling thing, Not so I, don't, serious. I don't care so much, but right. I think it's still, as you say, it's still kind of shows the difficulty we have in terms of actually comprehending who this guy is. We've, we've got the tabloids or the fan page, and we've got nothing in between. But one thing that we do know fairly certainly is how he really gets in with the Tsar and the Tsarina. Yeah. Like, what is it that Rasputin shows up and manages to pull off, which basically means that the Tsarina is now a devotee of okay. Rasputin? So this is the myth, and, and, and I'm not sure I believe it anymore. The myth suggests that once Rasputin is brought into the royal uh, family, once he meets the Tsarina, something happens to their youngest son, Alexei, who in the meantime, I haven't recounted this since uh, the departure of Monsieur Philippe, uh, Alexandra does in fact later uh, become legitimately pregnant and does bear a son. Turns out he suffers from hemophilia. As does like half the royal family. Hemophilia in the 1930s, it is discovered that there is something in snake venom that can help your blood clot. Hemophilia is a disease in which Uh, people who suffer from it, their blood doesn't clot or doesn't clot as quickly. So very minor injuries that cause any kind of internal or external bleeding can actually be fatal. Now, by the time the 30s roll around, we start to discover ways of managing the disease. But, But we're still in the early 1900s. And of course, they don't know that there's going to be a cure later. So right now, in Alexandra's family, there have been, you know, people who have died at the age of four. Oh, he fell, and he seemed fine, and then a couple of weeks later he was dead, that kind of stuff. Dead from internal bleeding. So she's very worried. The myth is that Rasputin comes and cures the son after he has had an episode. He falls, he starts, you know, presenting with hematomas, which are basically like big blood blisters, essentially. And, of course, if if it doesn't stop, it's just, okay, I don't need to get too graphic about it, but... She is, of course, very worried, and he seems to have this quite remarkable healing power. So he prays, and in a day or two, it goes away. Now, I'm going to get to Nathan has some theories about what's actually going on there. Is he able to manifest the will of God, or or is he able to chase away spirits and demons? I think the uh, instance of Monsieur Philippe shows that actually what the Tsar and Tsarina had always been looking for was a spiritual advisor who was not just part of the orthodoxy, that they were very open to having mystics, occult healers, um, quote-unquote wise men, uh, holy fools, uh, people who are in some way closer to God, they were going to bring them into the fold. I think that there is a greater need or interest by the uh, Romanovs in the occult and in spiritualism that can't just be reduced to his ability to help the kid. Even though, of course, as a parent myself, uh, if somebody can help an, my ailing child, my child, children are fine, but, you know, exactly, it would be a big deal. And there are a couple of instances where it looks really dire where he's been bleeding for days or more, and it just 
won't stop, that doctors can't help him. And then it's always in this time of desperation, Zarina calls him or writes to him, you know, and says, this is happening. And his healing powers are even supposed to work at a distance. So even if he's not there, he'll send a reply, don't worry, God has heard your prayers, he will be fine. And miraculously, things turn around every time. It really seems as though, you know, he does have healing powers. This is, again, when we look back and we try to figure out, okay, it does seem to be fairly well established that, yes, at least the Tsarina believed that Rasputin was healing her kid. Like, that seems to be legit. Yeah. So there's a bunch of hypotheses that we could look at. One, Rasputin had occult secret powers and was able to heal the kid. Yep. That's one possibility. But there are a bunch of other possibilities. One is something that we come across a lot when we're talking about conspiracy theories, and that is post hoc ergo propter hoc. What is that? After this, therefore caused by this. This is a mistake that we make. Just because something happens after something else, we assume it must have been caused by something else. Okay, hold on a second. I'm going to do a test, okay? All right. I have a phone. Yep. Okay. I'm going to drop the phone. Yep. Did you hear that noise? I did. But that noise was caused by me dropping the phone, right? True. So so that's how things work, isn't it? That's how causality itself works, is that one thing happens that causes something else to happen. <laughs> Except here's the thing. Was my sneeze also caused by you dropping your phone? Because you, yes. dropped, you dropped your phone and it then was, I sneezed. It was caused by it. And that's when we get into post-hoc ergoprapter hoc. So the possibility is that, that uh, this hypothesis would say that Rasputin came... He, he was working with the kid, and the kid got better because the kid was resting and, and it wasn't a serious enough injury to kill the kid. Right. And so it wasn't that Rasputin cured the kid. It's that Rasputin came by, later the kid got better, but there was no causal relation. Right. So that's another hypothesis. Uh, another one which is kind of interesting is that the doctors probably would have been giving the kid aspirin. Now, why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because we know now that aspirin operates as a blood thinner. This Uh, is why people are given aspirin if they are at risk of stroke and heart attack. I see. They're just given the wrong thing here. Yeah. And so if Rasputin had come by and said, no, no, don't give the kid any more of this aspirin. I will heal the kid. Uh Then the act of not giving the kid aspirin would have actually perhaps helped in the healing. Uh, Another effect, of course, uh, the placebo effect. Okay. The placebo effect is unbelievably powerful. So if you give somebody alcohol-free beer and you tell them there's alcohol in it, what's going to happen to them? Yeah, they're going to get drunk. They're going to get drunk. And they're not going to be faking it. Right. They're going to feel it. Yeah. And this is the power of the placebo effect. I think that the truth is probably some combination of these things. I think the placebo effect probably played a role. Uh, It's possible that the aspirin uh, also played a role. The, the fact that the kid simply got better and it was post hoc ergo propter hoc. There's another theory that uh, I think is a bit too complex and probably isn't accurate, but it's interesting. The Tsarina had a lady-in-waiting named Madame Virubova. Okay. And she was a huge fan of Rasputin. Right. To the point where some argue that maybe Virubova was actually poisoning the kid. Okay. And doing so strategically so that the kid would start recovering from the poison after Rasputin came by. Interesting. But I haven't seen, I mean, it's an interesting hypothesis. I haven't seen any evidence for it, and I don't know how we would at this point. It strikes me as somewhat less plausible because my sense is that the believers in Rasputin really were believers. Yeah, so you wouldn't like, need to poison the kid. You don't need to poison the kid because yeah. 
the guy is he's working God's magic or miracles or whatever. This rendition, she is poisoning the kid to make him. This would seem like he and a couple of the inner circle are in on it. Then they're running a scam. Exactly. This, they know they're running a scam. So then he gets, he's like, at this point, he's really in with the, the Romanovs. The Romanovs were clearly open to having some kind of guru come by. But then on the same day in 1914, mm. two crucial things happen at this, on the same day. And this yeah. is fascinating to me. Okay. So on the 28th of June, 1914, yep. two things go on. One, Archduke Ferdinand is assassinated, which is pretty much regarded as the spark that sets off the fire that becomes the war to end all wars. That's right. In large part because Russia participated. Yeah. If Russia had not gone into that war, that incident might have remained, quote unquote, sort of a problem in the Balkans. And you know what's interesting is that Rasputin was dead set against Russia coming into the war. Yep. And so you would think that Rasputin maybe would have convinced the Tsar not to enter into that war, not to uh, activate his troops, not to, you know, get everybody all ready to, to fight, except Rasputin couldn't be there to tell the Tsar not to activate the troops because on the same day that Ferdinand gets assassinated, Rasputin gets stabbed. Right. He gets stabbed uh, by a, a sex trade worker who has been hired by uh, a rival, a religious rival of Rasputin. She stabs him, calls him the Antichrist, reaches into the wound, pulls out a bunch of his intestines and yep. pulls them out. I mean, like that is, that's a bad wound. And yep. so he's basically laid up at the same time uh, this this war starts. Now, does that mean that all of this was planned? Was all of this planned to make sure that Russia would enter the war? Right. No, of course no. not. That's not how history works. <laughs> history is just a bunch of coincidental nonsense. But you can see how easy it is for our brains to want to put it together into a story that makes more sense. Yeah. I mean, the truth of it is, like, he probably wouldn't have been able to get to the Tsar in time. He might not have been able to convince him to stay out of the war. But because that decision was so catastrophic, like Russia's involvement in World War I, they just had this terrible war with the Japanese, and that was a disaster. And now they're into this new war, and the Tsar goes off to lead the troops. He does a pretty lousy job. He's not a very good general. He's not good at organizing the... Like, in order to fight a war, it, it isn't just the tactics. It's not just the strategy. It's also all of the organization of keeping everybody fed, of keeping everybody yeah. moving. And he's, he's, he's bad at all of it. He made a terrible mistake uh, as well, which is to take control of the troops. So um, because it was going so badly, Tsar Nicholas II decided to fire his general who was in charge of the war effort and do it himself. The problem now is that when there are terrible decisions that cost many, many, many lives, there is really now one person who you can blame. Before there was at least that kind of necessary distance where you could say, well, that was my minister who didn't follow the orders properly. Now you get a lot of resentment. Yeah, now the buck stops with you, basically. It's the first modern machine war on European soil, and the devastation is incredible. But it's significantly worse for the Russians because they have not been industrializing. So Western Europe has spent the last 50 to 100 years getting themselves really war-ready 
factories, roads, new war machines. World War One is the dawn of all sorts of horrifying new industrial weapons. It's amazing. And I mean, they say it's the war where individual bravery no longer matters. Yeah. You're just set out into a butcher's field. Yeah. It's so much worse for the, for the Russians because they don't have machines. So they're entering the first machine conflict on horseback with swords. They don't even get close before they get mowed down. I mean, this is this is really your, you know, I showed up to a gunfight with a knife kind of mistake. They were so incredibly unprepared for this war. And meanwhile, back home, the Tsarina is in charge of the country, yeah. which a lot of people argue mean, means that Rasputin is now in charge of that country. Yeah. Or the Germans. Or maybe that, you know, like at this point... Any kind of machinations will make sense of the horror that's in front of you. It's German spies. The Tsarina is a German spy working with Rasputin, the collaborator. I mean, at this point, anything goes. Yep. And so it's not surprising that in 1916, there is a plot. Yeah. There is a plot to eliminate Rasputin. And this is, I think, where a lot of the legend of Rasputin comes from, is this one moment. Right. Okay, look. We have to back up a little bit. There's been a lot. It's not just the war. People have been mad about Rasputin being there from the beginning. Some people are mad that he's this peasant upstart. How how could somebody, some nobody from Siberia who eats with his hands and, and you know, can't write well and speaks like... Doesn't even speak French. Yeah, he's a commoner. This guy has got the ear of the Tsar and Tsarina. It's outrageous, right? So there's that. There are people don't like him for that. Then people are worried about his mysticism, his occultism. Demonic. Um, there was a lot of anger towards this guy, and there was a lot of worry that actually he was infiltrating the court. People are like, the, the, the czar is turning into a puppet. So, yes, you're right, 1916, there's a plot to finally execute him, but it's not, I mean, as you just saw from 1914, it's not the first time that people are like, this guy's got to go. And they tried it in a number of ways to get rid of him. 1914, there was an attempted murder. In 1916, the murder is successful. The plan is hatched by a guy named Yusupov, who is a noble. Yusupov meets Rasputin a couple of years before the murder. Doesn't like him from the get-go. One of the things that um, rubs him the wrong way is that Rasputin, this peasant, does not seem to show the appropriate amount of deference to him, a noble outrageous right he's like <laughs> he doesn't get it so he though is you know he's a monarchist he's a conservative and he as well as many other people believe that the reason everything's going terribly in the war and in russia is because the czar is listening to this magician slash charlatan and the you know after years of trying to separate the czar from rasputin it's not working, and so the only way out is to kill him. Yusupov has recruited a couple of other guys, and they're, they've hatched a plan to finally assassinate Rasputin. They're assassinating him out of patriotic motives. They're trying to keep the monarchy and keep Russia intact, and they see that Rasputin is the greatest threat, so they're gonna, they decide to kill him. Uh, Yusupov is the guy who really does the dirty work. It starts by inviting him over to Yusupov's place. Yusupov and Rasputin have known each other for years, 
And Rasputin has not really been on bad terms with him, even though Yusupov doesn't like Rasputin. Rasputin's fine with Yusupov. So he comes over and Yusupov gives him cakes that have cyanide in them. So he eats three cakes and amazingly is not poisoned. So he then asks, uh, Rasputin does, asks for his favorite alcohol, which is this um, Portuguese wine called Madeira. And they give him that, in which there is also cyanide. Also, does not kill him. This goes on for hours and hours, which is why the dude does not... They put some poison into his wine. He drank it down and said, I feel fine. Exactly. It's now three o'clock in the morning of December 30th. And Yusupov is running out of patience. He's worried that his buddies who are all hiding upstairs are like going to think he's a chicken or something. So he excuses himself. He gets a gun. He comes back and he shoots Rasputin three times. So first, I think he shoots him in the stomach, which doesn't kill him. And then he shoots him again. And finally, he shoots him in the head. They then tie him up in cloth and chains. Oh, wait a second. Oh, okay. Because I've read Yusupov's account. Okay, yeah. So there is this moment where he gets up. Yeah, you, you want to go. Th- okay. So what what Yusupov claims, yeah. and whether you believe him or not, is 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 a different matter. Is that he shoots him, and then he goes upstairs, and he's like, "I shot him. He's dead." And everybody has a drink, and they party. Right. And then he goes back downstairs because right. he has this feeling. It's like, oh wait, I'm worried. Yeah. About this, he goes back downstairs and he looks at the body of Rasputin, and he pokes it, and he reaches down to to like feel for a pulse. And at that moment, an eye opens in Rasputin's head and Rasputin reaches forward and grabs him and starts to strangle him. Yeah. And he's able to fight Rasputin, zombie off, and run back upstairs. Right. And then by the time they all come back downstairs, Rasputin has crawled out of a window. Okay. And is crawling across the yard. Yeah. At which point they all run out and start shooting him in the back. Right. And, and, and then they wrap him up. And then they wrap uh, him up. And then they, they tie him in chains. And then they drive him to the river. And then they dump him in through the hole in the ice in the river. And again, Douglas Smith, who I'm basing a lot of my account on, suggests that subsequent autopsy reports, again, not available to many biographers who are writing shortly after his time on Earth, Bruce Putin's, that is, a subsequent autopsy discovers that there's in fact water in his lungs, which suggests that despite all of it, he, he was, was still breathing when he hit the water. Still alive when he hit the water. Not only that, but eerily, even though his, his arms had been tied up to his side, when his corpse is found, his arms are up as if in prayer. Yeah, you see. Ooh. Yeah. But um, he's totally dead at this point. He's totally dead. Even he dead. knows he's dead. He's totally dead. But he leaves, he leaves Russia with a prophecy. And he says, if I die, Russia will die with me. Yeah, if I die at the hands of someone in your family, if I die from someone in the royal family, the royal family will all die within two years. Yeah, and but my account was that I read was that he also predicts the end of Russia itself. And what's amazing is, in fact, that does happen. Two years later, we have the communists seize power. They execute the royal family. They call an end to the Russian Empire. They create the Soviet Union. And so both those moments there, the, the, the Romanovs are gone and Russia is gone after, shortly after Rasputin is gone. And now, I, I would argue that's the reason we remember Rasputin, because of his death and because of that alleged prediction that he had made. Yeah. 
And you know, there's one final bit that I find fascinating because of course the Bolsheviks come in and they throw out, I mean, part of this communist revolution is throwing out the old. Right. It's throwing out the old traditions, it's throwing out the old superstitions, yeah. it's throwing out the old religion. At the same time, the Bolsheviks make sure to dig up the corpse of Rasputin. Oh yeah. And burn it to ashes. Just in case. Just in case. Yeah. Just in case. The Soviets were big into overkill that way. So I guess we've come to the end of Rasputin and the end of the royal family and the end of Russia temporarily. What are the lessons? What are the lessons of this story? I mean, one we've been talking about all the way through, which is just the difficulty in reconstructing history and figuring out what actually happened and the frustration of that. That's, that's clearly a lesson. What are some of the other lessons specific to this story of Rasputin and the occult? I guess for me, one of the lessons was just the, was the danger of the occult as a way of getting close to power. I mean, just seeing how that worked and imagining if they had not been true believers, you know, if Rasputin had actually been a dub, an, an agent for, for another power. And, and this isn't powerful. the last time we'll see this. No. Like, we're going to see this again in America with somebody like Ronald Reagan. Yeah. And how closely uh, the occult got to Ronald Reagan and yeah. his decision-making abilities, even in his interactions with the Soviet Union. Yeah. There were decisions that Reagan made having to do with the Cold War that were based on occult principles. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's one of my lessons that I was surprised by. How about you, Nathan? Again, this, the idea of the power of the occult. The occult really derives its power from the social situation that it emerges in. Yeah. And what's fascinating to me is that in this last gasp, they didn't necessarily know that this was the last gasp of Imperial Russia. Right, of but course. It, but it was. Yeah. And one of the things that you see present in that moment is this hardcore fascination with occult principles. Yeah. We see the same thing in the last gasps of Imperial France. Huh. Are you suggesting that this is a sign of the end? When no. your culture gets massively into the occult, you are, you are, it is potentially a sign that it is over? Well, I could be post-hoc ergo propter hoc. Yeah, maybe. But I think it is an interesting thing that we will probably continue to look into with our future exploration of the occult world. All right. 